Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. In today's episode, we're sitting down with Peter Coranto, a 2006 Notre Dame graduate and peace studies alum who works as a senior advisor for peace and security at the U.S. Department of State in Washington, D.C. Peter talks with David Courtright, Director of Policy Studies and the Peace Accords Matrix Project at the Kroc Institute, about his career and how peace studies plays a role in his day-to-day work. It's important to note that Peter was speaking in his personal capacity during this conversation, and not on behalf of the State Department. This is David Courtright here at the Kroc Institute. I'm a professor of peace studies, and I'm speaking with our former student, a 2006 Notre Dame graduate, uh, Peter Caranto. Peter is now working at the State Department in a role as senior policy advisor. He's speaking in his personal capacity. So welcome, Peter. Thanks, David. It's it's great to be back uh, here to the Kroc Institute and the new Keough School for Global Affairs. I continue to reflect every day on on how uh, some of the experiences that I that I had here at the institute and at Notre Dame have shaped my career trajectory and, and, and my life in the year since. So tell us about your trajectory. You went from being a, a superstar, peace studies, undergraduate, uh, graduate with honors here at Notre Dame in 06, and now 10, 12, 13 years later, you're a senior policy advisor at the State Department. Give us a sense of your story and how you used your education, we hope, and, and how it uh, uh, aided you as you uh, moved into the policy advising world. So, David, as as you will recall, uh, while I was a student here, I took a class called Nonviolent Social Change, uh, taught by a very distinguished professor of peace studies, and was encouraged to think critically about how small groups of people can change policy and promote it, uh, promote more peace peace oriented policy change. And while I was a student here. In addition to my academic studies, I also became very interested and and very involved in work in Central Africa. I traveled to northern Uganda as a student and uh, researched and experienced the active conflict at the time with the Lord's Resistance Army that had displaced upwards of 2 million people. And I came back and with another Croc graduate, uh, Michael Poffenberger, we founded an advocacy organization that would become uh, Resolve and was part of uh, an advocacy movement over a decade to draw attention to the crisis with the Lord's Resistance Army in Central Africa and to try to change U.S. and international policy in response. I was fortunate after I graduated to get a Marshall Scholarship to go study peace studies, continue studying peace studies at the University of Bradford. I won't call it a rival institution, a uh, friendly uh, institution in the UK. And I also studied at the University of Oxford, where I continued to focus on sub-Saharan Africa. I came back to the United States after that time and uh, was hired by Senator Russ Feingold from Wisconsin, who was then the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and worked for Senator Feingold and the subcommittee for two, a little over two years, where I worked on a number of different pieces of legislation relating to Africa and trying to support local peace efforts. I then joined the State Department, initially on a one-year contract to support 
the peace process at the time when Southern Sudan was seeking to become independent and the U.S. Uh, administration was making a major diplomatic push to ensure that that process was peaceful. And so I had an incredible opportunity to work as part of that negotiations team. And then somehow that one-year contract at the State Department has now become almost a decade at the State Department, where I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of different issues related to peace and security and how U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign assistance try to advance peace and security goals. So what parts of your training and peace studies do you find most relevant as you address day-to-day challenges of international policy for the State Department? What's most relevant about peace studies for your work? I think that when I was here, I would say there were three three key elements of, of my peace studies education that have significantly shaped the way I've approached uh, working in policy and policymaking. The first, again, is is the work that you've led and certainly taught me in terms of the role of political change movements, nonviolent movements, and being driving forces for shaping and influencing U.S. foreign policy. I mean, I began my career really as an activist, uh, got to then move into the congressional realm, and now certainly being in the executive branch, I continue to see the way that uh, small groups of people, small coalitions can have uh, an outsized impact on shaping U.S. foreign policy. And I think that U.S. national interests and how we conceive of those interests and how we pursue them are not static. They're constantly being contested. And I think that public uh, movements can have a really profound impact. So that that has certainly shaped the way I think about policymaking. The second, again, to give you a bit of of credit, as well as uh, Professor George Lopez, I was very much influenced by the the work that that I was privileged to to play a small role in while I was here in thinking about how to improve sanctions regimes and develop better nonviolent, non-military tools for addressing real security challenges. I think there is a role for peace studies and peacemakers to be trying to to change the the narrative, the discourse of how we think about uh, issues of, of national security. But I also think that peacemakers and, and peace builders need to provide alternatives to address some of the real national security challenges and threats that we face. And I think it's not just enough for us to say what we shouldn't do in response to these challenges, but we also need to come up with creative, comprehensive strategies and and solutions. And so that has very much guided the work that I've done at the State Department in thinking about what are the non-security approaches, for example, to terrorism and to challenges of violent extremism that we can promote. The last thing that I would highlight is that I had the the privilege of working with John Paul Lederach and was very much influenced by the the work that that he has done in thinking about strategic peace building and the importance of relationships at the core of of peace studies. And I could think about that at a macro level in terms of how do we forge relationships within the international community. But I've also found that to be very relevant to my day-to-day work in terms of how do you work across a often very divided and very combative interagency within the government? How do you work with allies and partners to come up with common approaches And that intentional approach to building relationships, overcoming barriers is so critical. And so in a very practical way, some of the things that I I learned here uh, really helped me to operate in what it can often be a very dense and convoluted bureaucracy. Um, Say more about that last point in terms of 
building bridges. In relation to the important report within the government that you helped to uh, staff and support the Stabilization Assistance Review, rather remarkable document where you had the Pentagon and the State Department and the USAID uh, major agencies cooperating and coming with a unified perspective on how to assist countries that are in and coming out of conflict. Um, yeah, talk about the report and also the, the process of how you get those agencies that are sometimes seen as doing opposite or different directions to come together in a common perspective and policy. I'm really proud of the work that we were able to do starting in, in 2017 on the Stabilization Assistance Review. And, and this review really, it really came out of, of two converging trends. The, the first was we had a new administration, the Trump administration, that came into office and was inherently skeptical uh, and questioning of the vast amounts of resources that the United States and other international donors have provided to conflict-affected countries in the name of stabilization and reconstruction, and the, the continuing large amounts of assistance that were being put into responding to these crises and meeting humanitarian needs. And there was a strong push from the top that we needed a more uh, disciplined, a new approach to how we thought about that. At the same time, from the bottom up, there had been uh, a lot of early discussions among the people who were on the front lines of working on stabilization and responding to conflict challenges that we needed to work more effectively together. And so we thought that we could take advantage of these two converging trends and bring together a team from the State Department, USAID and the Department of Defense to outline a new approach, a new framework for how we could work more effectively together. The first step was really convincing the three agencies that we had a common interest. That was not as hard as I thought, because I think there was a, a shared recognition that we needed to improve how we operated in places like Iraq, uh, Libya, uh, Somalia, Nigeria. We then looked, uh, brought people together to look at what have we learned from the last 10 to 20 years in this, in this endeavor. And there were a lot of lessons that, that jumped out at us, the need to be more sensitive to political dynamics, that conflict is inherently political, and so too must our, be our approach, that we need to be more integrated across the, the three Ds, as we call them, diplomacy, development, and defense, that we need greater civil military coordination, that we need to be more intentional about how we work with security forces and security partners, realizing that they are conflict actors themselves and sometimes can exacerbate these dynamics, and realizing that external actors, including the United States, are political actors as well, and that the way we engage and the way we provide support can impact these crises. So we came up with a, a common set of principles and best practices that we all agreed were coming out of, of our shared experiences working on stabilization. And then we asked ourselves the question of, if we want to, to do better, if we want to start institutionalizing some of these lessons and best practices, what are the bureaucratic and organizational impediments that get in the way of that? We then spent the vast majority of our time dealing with some of those impediments. We came up with, for the first time ever, a definition of stabilization 
I, in, in, for people outside of government, that might not seem like a remarkable achievement, but anyone I talk to in government says, you came up with a common definition across state, USAID, and DOD. That's amazing. We did that. We also defined the roles and responsibilities for the three uh, agencies in these types of environments and, and significantly outlined a new policy of defense support to stabilization. So emphasizing that the Department of Defense should not be in the lead, but needs to be supporting the civilian actors to carry out diplomacy and, and assistance activities. And then we outlined uh, a number of areas where we, we hope to work more purposely with international partners and with uh, local partners going forward. So the implementation of the Stabilization Assistance Review is ongoing, and we are now working with our U.S. Embassy country teams in about uh, more than uh, uh, 10 countries to look at ways that we can start to apply some of these new practices and principles. Yeah, say more about that definition of stabilization and, and the challenge of balancing the approach of the U.S. and other governments to include the development and diplomacy piece, because so often stabilization is conceived mostly as a military or security task, and uh, the diplomacy or development parts of it are diminished or come later. How did you work with the agencies on getting a better balance, uh, and how do we do that going forward in policy? When we looked back at, at how stabilization was approached in the 2000s, there was a, a sense that what had been needed was basically to flood the zone, so to speak, with resources to try to achieve, let's say, a peace dividend or to bring as much governance, as much development, as much service delivery as possible to places that had been quote-unquote liberated uh, in the wake of, of secu partner security operations. When we looked at how that had worked, we saw a lot of examples where that didn't translate to lasting peace or lasting, lasting security gains. And a lot of the activities that were pursued were not sensitive to some of the local political dynamics that were at the heart of these conflicts and at the heart of what was causing instability in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, or, or Somalia. And so the first thing that we agreed on as a group was the importance of emphasizing that stabilization is an inherently political endeavor. And that is the bumper sticker that we continue to promote with the Stabilization Assistance Review as we move forward. And, it, and it's really important because it, it, it emphasizes the need for a different kind of mindset and a different kind of approach to how we engage in these environments, that it is not just a technical task of achieving security or delivering services, but it requires us to really understand those political dynamics on the ground, who has legitimacy, who could have legitimacy, how can our support enable the local actors who ultimately need to own the fu their futures, the future of their communities, to achieve solutions to peaceably manage conflict. So that inherently political endeavor part of stabilization was really at the heart of, of, of our definition and at the heart of the approach that we've, that we've tried to promote. The other emphasis that followed from that was the need to ensure that the military engagement and the security engagement was much, much more... Uh, attuned to those political dynamics and guided by diplomatic engagement and as well as what we're trying to do on on the on the foreign assistance side but especially the political engagement and and I will say I've found the my, the military colleagues that I have 
that I have worked with as part of this effort and, and over the course of, of the 10 years now or almost 10 years that I've been at the State Department are eager for the State Department and USAID to lead in these situations. DOD does not want to be in the lead long-term of trying to make peace or establish stability in these environments. They have specific things that they can bring to the table through partnerships, through security assistance and cooperation, but they realize that lasting solutions in these environments requires that, that critical diplomacy, requires mediation, peacemaking, and they are some of the best advocates out there for ensuring that the State Department and USAID have the capabilities that we need to, um, to do that. Yeah, it's so interesting. Often you do find that the, the military folks know better than anyone how a, a military excessive emphasis, a, a military uh, approach that's predominantly uh, focused around the use of force doesn't work or is not sufficient to solve the problems. One of the things that is that is really interesting right now is that uh, there is a, a legislative proposal on Capitol Hill that the Department of Defense has requested of the Congress that would allow DOD, the Department of Defense, the military, to provide non-reimbursable support for civilians, for State Department and USAID professionals to move forward and conduct stabilization activities. And it is one of the top legislative proposals that the Department of Defense is advocating for. And I think that's that gets to the, to the heart of this. There's a realization from our military colleagues that if they don't have diplomats and development professionals that can go out into these insecure environments that we will not be successful. And so we're working with the Congress now to look at what are some creative solutions so that as U.S. military contingents are partnering in semi-permissive or non-permissive environments, that they can, they can bring along with them state and USAID officials that can help to advise them and that can be in the lead of engaging with local partners and conducting non-military activities. How do we get that understanding more widely shared? Uh, as we both experience, a lot of military professionals have it. But you look at the priorities of government, uh, the military spending is at vast amounts, more than $750 billion, I believe, this year. And every year there seems to be proposals to cut State Department funding or to cut on development funding. And the balance is, of course, way disproportionate to the military side. So it's not your problem per se. But what kind of... Political arguments and strategies can we take with our elected leaders, with with uh, the media, with uh, American citizens to understand this more holistic framework of security and international uh, stabilization? I have no doubts about my lack of ability to shape some of those macro trends in terms of kind of the overall budget shifts. But what I think what I think is really important. And what the Congress is hungry for in the times that, that I've engaged with congressional staff is a more defined understanding of how state, USAID, and DOD want to work together to tackle some of these challenges. And I think when we look at how not just the United States, but the international community, how we respond to issues of crisis, whether it's protracted crisis or uh, emerging crisis, it's often a pickup game. We're kind of learning on the fly as we go every time. And yet there are some consistent lessons that come out of our experience time and time again. And so again, what we tried to do with the Stabilization Assistance Review 
And some of the other initiatives that we've undertaken over the last couple of years is to define more clearly how we want to work effectively across the U.S. government interagency, how we want to work more effectively with international partners to achieve lasting gains and institutionalize some of the lessons learned. And I think we are seeing with the Global Fragility Act that is now making its way through Congress, a, a recognition that Congress is, is hungry to see us continue these kinds of efforts to better define how we can work together and to do it in a way that's, that's, that's ideally uh, as measurable and uh, results-based as possible. The Fragility Act is what you were mentioning earlier in terms of the Pentagon being supportive of that. Law. Actually, it's a it's it's a parallel proposal um, that's that's making its way through Congress. Not something that gets a lot of attention because it's a very technical request, but it's it's one of these things that that I think actually could be quite significant as a tool to allow us to operate more effectively together in a more integrated fashion. But the Global Fragility Act is a piece of legislation that uh, has bipartisan support. On the Hill, it has pa it passed the House of Representatives in May. It was approved by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in June, and it is now pending the full approval of the Senate. One of the challenges that I know as a former Senate staffer is that getting anything out of the Senate that is not going to take up a floor vote because so few things can go to the floor is always a challenge because you have to have 100% consensus. So I know there's a lot of work ongoing. The... The administration, the, the Trump administration has expressed support for the goals of the Global Fragility Act. There's a lot of things that are consistent about the act um, with what we've tried to do with the Stabilization Assistance Review and some of our other initiatives. We still have issues that we work out with, with the Congress in terms of how prescriptive the legislation is. There's always this tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch about how much flexibility Congress should provide us. But I, I think that the Global Fragility Act, if it passes, would provide us with a, a real impetus to to advance a, a defined approach to to these challenges and would really demonstrate uh, a clear signal from Congress about their their interest in these these issues. And of course, it would also authorize a, a fairly significant amount of funding. So we're, we're all watching very closely to see what happens with this act. But regardless of what happens with it, I, I'm still very excited about some of the things that we are organically doing within the government right now to try to advance more, as I said, more more comprehensive, more intentional approaches to stabilization and prevention. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And, and of course, this approach, this more combined, integrated uh, approach to security and instability is what's common in many other countries, especially our European allies and partners. So the U.S. hopefully moving in that direction yeah, could be positive. Kind of the last point I guess I could raise. So we're at this great university with the Peace Studies Center and now the new Keough School of Global Affairs, and we're expanding our master's program to train uh, young professionals to go out into the field. Uh, what should we, we be teaching them, do you think? What do the students need the most as they uh, prepare for contributing to these trends that you're talking about? The first thing I want to say is that I think it's it's a really exciting time to be studying peace studies in particular, but also global affairs. When I was a student here and then and then moved into the policy arena, it was very hard to explain to a policy community how a peace studies degree translated into into policy into policy work. And certainly some of the terms that we use widely in, in peace studies are, have not been uh, as 
as widely embraced in policy conversation. So I found when I was working on Capitol Hill and I started talking about peace building, people would ask, what does that mean? Uh, what is peace building? Let's talk about, uh, let's use some different, different terms. And, and in the last couple of years, I've seen that change pretty significantly. Uh, the number of major international institutions, the UN certainly, but also the World Bank, many of the European governments, the United States, the number of people that are talking about the need for peace building, for new approaches to violent conflict, for peaceful resolution of conflict is widespread. And I think that's, I think that's based, if I can go on a brief tangent, I think that's really based on three things that are happening right now. I mean, the first is, we have seen in the last couple of years a real uptick in the number of violent conflicts worldwide. Uh, so after a period where at, at, after the end of the Cold War, there was a sense that we were seeing a, generally a steady decline in the number of violent conflicts worldwide. In the last five years, that trend has changed. And I think policymakers are increasingly recognizing the need to address that, that high level of violent conflict. The second is the the effects that those violent conflicts are having. I mean, the 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 number of people displaced worldwide today is the largest in recorded human history. So we are now at seventy point four million people displaced worldwide as either IDPs or refugees, and that is staggering in terms of the human suffering it creates. It's also staggering in terms of the financial toll that it has put on the international community. I don't have the exact statistics, but I think, you know, humanitarian assistance levels have almost tripled in the last decade. And certainly the costs of peacekeeping, the numbers of peacekeeping have gone up uh, considerably. And so there's a sense from policymakers that we need to do something differently. We can't, um, we can't just continue to respond to these crises and not address what is driving them in the first place. And whereas much of that humanitarian need 10 or 20 years ago was driven by natural disasters. Today, the vast majority of it is a result of violent conflict or, or high levels of violence, as we're seeing in, in parts of Latin America. And the third is that as we look at the, the sustainable development goals and some of the, the commitments that the World Bank has made to reduce extreme poverty, while we've made huge strides as a global community in reducing poverty, we're increasingly finding that our ability to achieve the targets that we've set for ourselves is going to be limited by the persistence of fragility, conflict, and violence. And so the World Bank has has committed to shift a considerable amount of its resources and its attention to addressing issues of fragility and conflict because that's where extreme poverty is increasingly concentrating. And the traditional tools of economic development are insufficient in places where you have these systems and structures of, of, of violence and, and conflict. And so I think seeing and hearing people talk about peace building and the need for peace in ways that I would have been amazed a decade ago, the fact that the the UN has changed its Department of Political Affairs to its Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, and the Secretary General has a sustaining peace agenda. And as I said, the fact that the World Bank has made these uh, these significant changes. So all that is to say, I think it's a really exciting time for students and scholars. I think there are so many more openings at the, at the present for innovative research and scholarship into these to these issues. And to your question about what do we need from students, you know, I think we need students that can think outside the box. I think we need students who can build coalitions, including unlikely coalitions, not just the, 
you know, the same old, but I think as we talked about being able to bridge across the civilian and military divide, being able to work across international partnerships with local partners, there's certainly work, interesting work happening between the public and the private sector. And how do we bring the private sector in as an ally and a constituency for peace? And then uh, the last thing is leadership. And I think what I have seen from many of the, the great, smart people I've worked with and the people that I most admire is a commitment to not just accept the status quo as it is, but look for ways to be change agents, to inspire people to think differently, to, to operate differently, and to bring people along. And I think Notre Dame's commitment to fostering leaders is needed more than ever. Great. Thank you, Peter. Good luck to you in your continuing career. Thanks, David. I, it's great to be here, and I look forward to more of these conversations. You've been listening to The Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at crock.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our show, which will help more people find us. For more updates and stories from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.